somebody had a look inside, saw a whole lot of you know, paraphernalia that belonged to a prison escapee called Ray Denning. Denning had escaped from New South Wales uh, maybe weeks, week or two earlier and, and was wanted. Well, hello, everybody. Before we get into today's episode, which is a doozy, let's talk about a sponsor, the Woodford Group. Do Monday mornings get you down? Are you feeling unmotivated in your current job? Then it is time for a change. Let the team at the Woodford Group help you find your dream job today. With a focus on senior executive, permanent and temp roles within the HR, business support and customer service industries, the dedicated team will help you find success and satisfaction in your new job. Visit woodfordgroup.com.au today. Today's guest is a former Victorian police officer with 21 years experience, which included a stint as a detective in the Carlton CIB dealing with the house burglaries and fraud. And one of the most notable cases we discussed was an attempted bombing where a competitor literally tried to blow up the opposition. From there, he was invited to the armed robbery squad and working on high profile cases like recapturing a prison escapee and convicted bank robber. During these years, it also included the tragedy of the Wall Street police murders and the capture and subsequent loss of one of the most prolific bank robbers of the modern era. He left the force in 2000 to work for a bank managing the group investigations function, which was responsible for investigating employee corruption across 31 countries, and has stated that it was more general crime than he dealt with in the Victorian police, with murders, drug trafficking, slavery, gun running, theft, corruption and fraud. He is now the CEO of the not-for-profit police veterans organization, which looks after police vets with PTSD. Episode 64, David McGowan. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in. So bring on the inspiration. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Now, you're the CEO currently of the, well, I say currently, but you are the CEO of the um, police veterans and which works a lot with the mental health side of the veteran community for the police force. Is that is that a national role or is that just for Victoria? No, it's Victoria only. Okay. It's not a Victorian only issue, Fiona, but we yeah. are Victorian. So I'm the CEO of what is called Police Veterans Victoria. Yeah. Well, before we get into that, I actually want to start off how you ended up in that role, which is you were in the police force for many years. And I was reading your bio that you sent through and I was kind of reading it through going, oh, yeah, you know, you know, standard bio. And then I started Googling some of these cases and, oh, my gosh, David, like you need to bloody write a book and license it and do a freaking TV series or something. I was <laughs> like, this is crazy, the amount of stuff that you – saw and dealt with and the big name cases and it was just like holy guacamole (laughs) i mean you started back in in uh, 79 so back in the sort of battle days of the 80s and the police force what made you want to get into policing in the first place um so for me i grew up watching division four homicide and matlock police Okay, Once I started watching, yep, <laughs> they were crawl through productions based on Victorian coppers. Once I started watching those, I was hooked. Yeah. Um, I reckon most kids want to grow up and be a policeman. I never grew out of it. So um, <laughs> as soon as it came, that's where yeah. I was going and I was straight in. 18 years old. I actually graduated on my 19th birthday. Wow. Just kids when you think about it. Yeah, because you, your first poster was in South Melbourne, which now is a very affluent area. It's beautiful, but it was quite rough back then, wasn't it? 
very rough. It was yeah. a painter and dockers town. There was 37 hotels in the police sub-district. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no trendy bars and cafes in, in those days. Mm-hmm. Most of the pubs still shut at 10. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was a very different place. It wasn't – they didn't host, host trainees. So trainees do it in that time. You did a three-month, 12-month period at a suburban police station or sometimes the bigger country ones. Yeah. South Melbourne was the only station where the trainees were not sent because it was considered to be uh, a little more extreme. Is that the reason why, and I, I know that you were saying that in your bio you were talking about women were new to performing general duties in the 1980s in the police force. It was a bit of a shift. But you also mentioned that they weren't allowed on the roster in South Melbourne. Was that because it was so rough? No, it wasn't in, not anywhere in Victoria Police. Oh. So there was a policewoman's division. And right. then there was general duty. So at the beginning of, uh, in the early part of 1980, mm-hmm. mid part 80, they changed the rules and female police were um, were permitted to do general duty. So they went on to the normal rosters and worked the divisional vans and did all the same jobs. How but was the- that, being a copper on the beat and then having women come yeah. in? Um, I, d- I didn't mind it. I mean, yeah. It's challenging in the environment you work in because you're not sure whether you're going to get the same sort of backup. Um, yeah. And there were misconceptions. Um, but um, it but was fair. A... I mean, you haven't worked with women before. Like, that's a fair concern. Mm. And, uh, you know, you go and talk to a couple of colourful individuals, you're not necessarily going to get the same response if you're yeah. standing with a policewoman. The yeah. reality was most of the time they diffused problems. Yeah. <laughs> not didn't they didn't create them? They actually diffused them. Yeah. By just that presence. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? How yeah. how the benefits for for both sides. How long were you in that South Melbourne beat for? Six years. Okay. Um, so went in there in the very beginning of 1980. Um, worked the section. You do different um, rotations. You do mm-hmm. Warrants and files job, which is pretty much chasing up outstanding warrants, arrest warrants and warrants of commitment, which were unpaid fines, mm-hmm. uh, taking statements for other police stations. Then there was a six-month block in the watch house looking after prisoners. Mm-hmm. Um, so we would generally hose hold prisoners only for a day or two before they'd be transferred into the city watch house, but that mm-hmm. was a full-time role. The rest of it was general duties, work in the van, doing plainclothes work now and then. Um, for me, it was all about trying to get a spot in the CI, be a detective. But the the gun legislation didn't come in in Victoria until the nineties, wasn't it? So you were dealing with a lot more firearms on the in the general public when you're going and serving these warrants. Um, not not really. I mean, okay. when I started out, we didn't always wear firearms on duty. Uh, you always did on night shift, but mm-hmm. it was not unusual just to head out on a pair of handcuffs on your back belt and a rubber baton down the side pocket of your uniform. That was it. The guns then were little 32 Brownings. I actually saw a crook get shot in the back of the head with one and didn't even take him off his feet. He just kept on running. So they were not a very effective weapon. Wow. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so you moved to, in 85, you moved to Carlton CIB. What is CIB? CIB is a criminal investigation branch, suburban okay. detectives, and that's where you cut your teeth as a junior detective, mm-hmm. house burglaries, assaults, sexual offences, um, from time to time, you'd get more complex cases, but they were generally the, the routine investigations. The more complex 
Manners would go into the crime squads. You dealt with some fairly high-profile cases, though, in the CIB. Did? I did. Well, go on, elaborate. Okay. So, um... It's one, like, you know, the funny thing is dealing with covers, like when you have a chat to them, they don't really, like, it's, you kind of have to pull the stories out of you guys because you don't, <laughs> you don't like elaborating. Keith was fine, though. Keith loves a good yard, but... <laughs> right. So, um... I guess so. Some of the more colourful ones is a detective at Carlton. One was this uh, this guy called Bill Dobson. Now, Bill Dobson was an old painter and docker, an old criminal, done been in and out of jail quite a number of times. He found out that a person of the same name, um, who was now a Jesuit priest, had studied at Melbourne University. And Bill Dobson, the colourful individual, impersonated the original guy got a job as a, as a lecturer in the economics department and for a number of years lectured students on economics. By all accounts, he was uh, reasonably skilled in that field. Wow. And continued on until somebody wanted to organise a reunion and contacted the university to find his fellow students to be told, oh, well, Bill Dobson's a, a lecturer here and uh, no, that wasn't the real Bill Dobson. <laughs> So the university found out about it. I'm sure that they pondered long and hard because the reputational damage for them was significant. But to their credit, at the time, the um, Chancellor came forward, reported it. We investigated Mr Dobson. He was ultimately charged with obtaining a financial advantage by deception, so getting a job based on skills he didn't have. Mm -hmm. Um, He actually wasn't the same person, just had the same same name. So... um, that was probably one that was uh, a little different. Um, <laughs> another one was uh, there was a um, convenience store in Nicholson Street called the Food 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 Plus store. I think Seven Eleven, the dominant back then. There yep. was Food Plus uh, opened up a couple of doors up from a competitor called the Blue Arrow Cafe, and the Blue Arrow Cafe's business went down when Food Plus was opened. So that wasn't good for them. So. Uh, mysteriously, the Food Plus was firebombed, uh, was wow. shut down, and uh, the other cafe went back into full flight. Food Plus was rebuilt. Business went down again, so the individual that ran it, a um, guy called Simon Saker, it's amazing how these names all stick in. <laughs> he um, he wired the place up with explosives um, oh my in the cavities, wired the whole building up to blow. The owner of the Food Plus went out the back to put some rubbish in the dump master and saw some wires sticking out of the brick wall. He followed the wires down along the laneway and stopped where he thought they were heading. Called the police. Um, the uniform patrols turned up. They quickly determined that the building had been wired up to blow. So it was a fairly significant event. If it had gone, if it had gone off, it would have taken out quite a number of houses and clearly it would have been some significant loss of life. Yeah. The uh, specialist bomb detection guys came in. The army brought their bomb disposal people in. As I recall, it the army wanted it to blow, um, so they evacuated the area. But we said that's not really good from an evidentiary point of view. So we had a really <laughs> don't let uh, don't let a crime scene get in the way of a good of a good day out. So we had a very particular, very skilled bomb technician in the special operations group, the SWAT guys called Dennis Tipping and Dennis Dennis said I can fix it so Dennis Duff used all the bombs rendered it secure took the evidence out we raided the cafe uh, arrested the offender recovered evidence at the scene he ultimately went to trial 
contested trial lasted a while and he was ultimately convicted. So um, good outcome. Yeah. Yep. Did he have explosive experience? Uh, we didn't get a lot of cooperation out of the offender. Right. So um, he must have got some guidance somewhere. Yeah. There wasn't any internet back in the mid-80s, so no. you couldn't have looked it up on Google, could you? Well, you shouldn't be they looking it up anyway it. on Google. <laughs> Not endorsed. <laughs> Not endorsed. No, no. Um, so I guess those two cases were probably the highest profile investigations mm. I was directly in, involved in, but was a really good town, some great businesses, a lot of, a lot of a very vibrant entertainment strip up Ligon Street. Um, there was, before the casinos, there were, and it's an illegal two-up school operating um, that. So you'll have to. So two up is a game that is played with coins that has been. I don't know why it was being made illegal, but it's been made illegal as a gambling form of gambling in Australia, and it's only allowed to be played on Anzac Day. That's right. Because um, yep. it was a tra- tradition in the trenches. Uh, the it's Anzac? a it's a tradition with soldiers. I think it yeah. goes back around World War One. Um, mm. So two pennies, one head up, one one head down. You flip them up and um, bet on the outcomes. 50, 50 odds. Why? Do you know why it's been, considering we allow all for other forms of gambling, why that's been outlawed? Uh, I would hazard a guess that um, the controls are around the government getting tax income out of it. Um, yeah. Prohibition doesn't work. Prohibition didn't work for alcohol, didn't really work for gambling. And I remember in the, in the 80s, people used to cross the border, across the Murray to mm. play the pokies. And then they saw that all this money was going into state and not being earned here, which resulted in the in the gambling revolution that that Jeff Kennett brought into the state. Mm. Mm. Um, for those outside of Victoria, Jeff Kennett was our uh, state premier, so he was in charge of the state for a while. Yep. So in so now we're up to eighty eight. Yep. So you get invited to the armed robbery squad. Um, correct. Um. What's the difference between being invited and being... Applying? Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, I mean, I, it sounds fairly obvious, but what's the significance of it? Yeah, so they were, there were a number of significant squads, armed robbery squad, major crime squad and homicide. Mm-hmm. Um, most blokes in my time aspired to be a detective. You would aspire to end up in one of the three major squads, maybe the drug squad to, a, to another extent. Um, they're very tightly managed, well, well disciplined. Um, anybody can apply for any vacancy, and it may have been that I'd applied and, and got it. it. Wasn't anywhere I'd particularly aspired to be at, even though we all like playing cops and robbers, right? Um, but I was actually approached and said, well, "There's a vacancy. Um, would you like to come in?" Very flattering. How could you say no? Yeah. So, um, so you know, I went. So what's it because you were dealing with robberies and in the CIB. So how is it different when you when you're in the armed robbery robbery squad? squad. Yeah. So as a suburban detective, you deal with the minor type um, armed robberies. Mm -hmm. Um, Taxi driver got held up, milk bar, um, the cafe, person walking down the street. The squad, the armed robbery squad itself's criteria was to investigate uh, high tech, sophisticated holdups. Anything on a bank, anything involved in armoured escort, anything over a certain value. 
anything in, resulting in significant injury to the victim. So in the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of bank robberies in Australia. There was a lot. In mm. uh, When I went into the squad in 88, there was a three, maybe four banks were held up every week. Yeah. Um, when I finished my time four years later, I'd be lucky to be one a month. So in that intervening period, a lot of... Uh, a lot of um, robbers were arrested, convicted. A number of them were shot. A number of them were shot dead. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some fairly targeted operations working on them. And, and you've got to understand back in that period, there were professional gangs that they did it for a living. When they you say weren't... shot dead, are you talking from the police or are you talking about police yeah. action? Or Okay. Yeah, as a result of police actions, a number were shot dead. Okay. Um, and a number of police were shot dead as well. Um, mm-hmm. In the course of it, so yeah, so the armed robbery squad dealt with the with the bigger profile cases, mm-hmm. um, predominantly the banks. So how? So you, you mentioned that a lot of them were gang related. Is that sort of how you ended up dealing with sort of the Cox Dennings? Well, Cox and Denning, that was um, that was an arrest by chance. Okay. Yeah. In, in you need ways. to explain who Cox and Dennings are. Okay. So. Um, I was in the squad for um, a couple of months. No, actually, it was only a few weeks. Um, and there was a Brambles, was a uh, security company that were doing a cash pickup at Doncaster Shopping Centre in Melbourne, in mm-hmm. the um, north northeast suburbs. They saw a car following them around the shopping centre. Saw one of the guys in the car put a balaclava on. Thought they were going to get hit. Brambles rang their security office, the security team. Rang, the off- rang our office, the robbery squad, saying we think that we're being cased. This is not a job that you'd refer to the local detectives or to the uniformed police patrols. Um, by chance, there was a couple of um, robbery squad crews out in the area. So they deployed across, met, uh, covertly met with the Brambles guards, identified the vehicle. Somebody had a look inside, saw a whole lot of uh, paraphernalia that belonged to a prison escapee called Ray Denning. Denning had escaped from New South Wales uh, maybe weeks, week or two earlier and, w- and was wanted. So the rest of the crews uh, came out there. Um, there was a very quick operation order pulled together by one of the sergeants. Uh, some observation posts were set up. The members deployed around the shopping centre. A lot of us on the day were in scruffs, so jeans and casual gear, not suits, because of the... Uh, unrelated work that we were all doing on the day. Um, Denning, as it turned out, came back to the car with two others. Um, As he did that, a second car pulled up. There was a brief conversation. Both cars pulled out. The direction was given. Uh, Well, we know Denning's in one car. We don't know who the other one is, but they're both connected. Let's grab them both. Um, Denning was arrested about 100 metres inside the car park from where he pulled out in a head-on impact. He was arrested, taken out. The other car. When you say saw, taken out, ar- arrested. He was and arrested taken at away. gunpoint, taken out of the vehicle, okay. handcuffed, restrained. When you say taken out these days, it sounds like a hit. So I just wanted to clarify that. <laughs> right. No, it wasn't that, nothing like that. Um, more the police parlance. So Denning was quickly uh, detained. The other party was trying to get away. Every time he turned down one of the streets in the car park, um, one of the squad members would jump out, block the way. Um, he was called on multiple times to surrender. Um, 
He did not. He his escape methods were removed one by one, and in the end, there was two members standing at the back of the loading bay, at back of Myers. He lined one of them up, tried to run him down. Uh, he was shot at the vehicle, crashed into the back of the loading bay. The driver was taken out. And he was armed with a thirty-eight revolver, so a um, handgun. He was quickly uh, contained and secured. I remember not long, in moments later, an ambulance crew turned up. We thought he'd been shot dead. Um, the car was riddled with bullets. Um, not one of them hit the driver, not one. So the blood and the injuries were caused by the impact. So he was taken back to the squad in St Kilda Road and fingerprinted. He made some comment at the time when his fingerprints were taken, well, you'll be surprised when you realise who I am. Um, our analyst at the time, Kay Murphy, said, who are you, Russell Cox or somebody? And he just shrugged his shoulders. 20 minutes later, the fingerprint guys confirmed that's who it was. Russell Cox was, his nickname was Mad Dog, been on the run for 12 years, was wanted in relation to some gangland killings and other serious crimes. So um, his freedom came to an end pretty much by chance. Denning, how did you know... Again, no internet around at this time. So how did you know on site who Denning was? Oh, well, broadcasts. If, if there's an SKP out, yeah. that information goes around the country quite quickly. So, And what uh, was so he in prison for? for? I can't remember now. Um, Denning was, was an armed robber. So mm-hmm. whether he was serving time then for armed robberies, I'm not too sure. Mm-hmm. And convicted armed robber. Convicted, yeah. Convicted. He escaped. I think it was Long Bay Jail he escaped from. Okay. Which is like Pentridge for Sydney siders. It's meant to. It was meant to be an impenet- like inescapable prison, wasn't it? They say that, but uh, Cox got out. got out of there as well. Yeah. So um, a number of prisoners find they managed to get out. Again, escapes aren't really common these days. Prisons must be designed a bit more securely than they were in those days. I think and a lot more cam- cameras and stuff as well. You know. Yeah. Yeah. When. Um, one of the most significant and I think awful events that happened in the Victorian police was Walsh Street. Um, I was a baby when it happened and I only found out about it because we ended up living quite near the street and my, my dad told me about it. For those that are unaware or outside of Australia, explain what the significance of Walsh Street means to the Victorian police. Okay. So you've got to go back a couple of years. Um, And I said before that armed robberies, sophisticated armed robberies on banks and payroll trucks are done by professional crews. Yeah. They run in their own little cliques, if you like, um, and their styles vary from crew to crew. One one individual was uh, shot dead during a police raid and the intelligence we had was that there was a pact that if any one of theirs ever were ever shot and killed by the police again, you've got to remember these are dangerous, violent people, then they would take out two police for every one of theirs. So um, in October 88, there was an action um, after a long surveillance operation. There was a decision made in the squad to arrest a suspect called Graham Jensen at Narry Warren. Um, I was in the squad a couple of months at that point. Some of the crews were heading down to Narry Warren um, I could have tagged along for that or there was an opportunity to go up 
into the country to talk to somebody in one of the prisons about something completely unrelated because that wasn't my job I was involved. In that investigation, I didn't go. But that resulted in uh, Jensen being shot dead during and arrested. And um, so as fate played it, if I'd chosen to go down to Narrowarm with the other eight members of the squad, um, I'd be in the dock with the rest of them charged with murder as it, you as need, it played out. You need to explain that statement because that was in your, in your bio. What, what does that mean that you were in the dock ch- charged with murder? In the murder? dock is... Okay, so um, there was an arrest, attempted to arrest Jensen. Um, he was shot dead um, mm-hmm. by members of the armed robbery squad. Mm-hmm. And those, um, the member who fired the gun and the other seven who were present were all ultimately charged with murdering Jensen. Right. The, so the, Jensen's death occurred um, on the 11th of October, the 12th of October, a car, stolen car, was parked in Wall Street, South Yarra. A call went out for an abandoned vehicle. Steve Tyne and Damien Air, working the Paran divisional van, responded to that call. When they pulled up, um, they got out to examine the car. They were ambushed and both executed at, at the scene. We believe then and still now do now that that was in retaliation for the death of Jensen the day before. And this has all been well documented and reported in movies, TV shows, books, public court cases, transcripts. Pub- it's public all knowledge. it's all very well public knowledge. Yeah, um, I can't believe it's th- it's thirty more than thirty odd years ago. Um, yeah, it doesn't feel like it. So the uh, the feeling amongst all members was just gut wrenching. Yeah. Um, it's it's really difficult to explain the emotion that comes with that, even harder for um, people in our robbery squad who indirectly um, probably had some role in that in that action and retaliation. Did you did the squad know that this um, word or pact or deal in terms of to a two of them for every one of ours was Did we know out. that existed? Yeah. There was some intel that was out there, but it was not Confirmed. something that was in front of anyone's mind. Yeah. So there's still a, um, a plaque and memorial in Prime Police Station, isn't there, to the two officers? Yeah. Yep. 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 So, um, so it really it highlighted a particularly violent period in Victorian history. Mm. in the late 80s and on um, where the police were getting shot, the crooks were getting shot. It was it was like the Wild West. Mm. Um, it was really it was really intense. Mm. Um, so, um, so there was a task force set up run by the Homicide Squad, obviously. A number of the members of the armed robbery squad were involved in that task force. That resulted in four people being charged but ultimately acquitted. Um, and to this day, no one's been convicted of those murders. Did you ever, considering it was such sort of wild, wild west and so violent at that time and police were actively getting targeted by these um, criminal organisations, did you ever think it's time to get out? Never. Never, okay. No. There were times when we would sit, 
we would often run operations and you'd yeah. be reasonably well equipped. Uh, we'd start surveillance operations in the early hours of the morning. You'd have surveillance crews following targets around, knowing what they were going to do. Um, we would have an operation plan in place where if in the event that there was a hold-up that occurred, we'd be involved in the rest of the offenders. Mm-hmm. I can remember now sitting in the in the cars wearing ceramic-plated vests that rose up like Ned Kelly's armour, short, shortened down shotguns, strapped on. There were days when I thought, I'm not sure if I'm coming out of this. <laughs> I'm wow. not sure why I'm here. Um, but then the, the adrenaline and the rush of getting to that point and then having it turned down uh, was a daily was a daily occurrence um, over extended periods for many years. You kind of got used to it, but you were kind of psyched up for something to happen and then we'd get called off. And we'd get called off by really simple things. Um, following a suspect around, you'd see a police car going the other way, that no, nah, we're off, we're not doing it. So um, I have to be very patient. <laughs> yeah. Is that adrenaline almost addictive, sort of that build-up to it and about to go in and is that kind um, of that suspense it, it, almost? Yeah, it is a bit, but the relief's pretty strong. <laughs> yeah. When you just when you know, okay, the danger's passed right now. Yeah. Um, and I think that must be that must be what it's like in the military in, in conflict, that you, you know, who's going over the hill, you know, you psych yourself in for it and then the moment passes and you're, I'm okay, okay, that's good. Um so when I but no, I was never. There was never a situation was uh, I need to get out of here. This uh, I'm going to die in this job. <laughs> Plenty did. How, but, given the level of, um, I mean, you're not at the CIB anymore. You're not dealing with more the low level crim stuff. You're dealing with more organised crime. Hmm. How were you ever worried in terms of your family and family safety? Yeah. Um, I went into the squad as a single man and came out married with um, with one child. Um, one particular case, we were we I became aware that the uh, offenders were actively trying to identify where myself and two other uh, squad members were, were living. Um, so we were the subject of some active intel, which identified us as serious threats against us. Jesus. So. Um, they put us through an advanced driving course and said it was okay to carry your service gun around everywhere you went, which we did anyway. <laughs> so um, it was just being aware. You take certain, you take steps to make sure that it's not obvious, it's not, it's not easy to find, find you. So there's things that police can do. You, your details don't go on the electoral roll. Don't put your own name on utility bills, things like that. When I was um, chatting with... Keith, so I probably should let the listeners know, Keith Banks put me in contact with you. Keith Banks has been on the podcast before and he's an ex-copper from Queensland and he was doing undercover work in the drug squad. Remarkable individual. I did a series of uh, episodes with him, so everyone can go and listen to that. But Keith was saying that even though he was undercover on the arrest documentation, he had to put his real name and I think his address from memory as well. I'm not sure, but it was certainly his real name. Did you have anything like that? Like no, we you... our addresses on a on a, every witness has to give their name and address. Yeah, a police witness, your address is the is the work, not home. Okay, so it would be care of four one two St Kilda Road, Melbourne. Yeah, but your real name's going on there. Our name's going absolutely. Yeah, oh, yeah. I suppose for an evidence point of view, you'd have to, but that's pretty scary. 
Yeah, I think there are certain circumstances where um, an assumed identity can be passed up, but um, for the for the investigator, for the police informant, no, there's no exemptions like that for us. Um, let's talk about Victor Brinkat. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so Victor... because you've just put in here, and I have to state this, it's a very nonchalant statement that you've put in your bio saying captured and then lost Victor Brinkat. Mm, yep, that's right. <laughs> so Victor was a very prolific bank robber and, and it's, he's, he was unusual in a number of ways. Was and he found guilty was, of bank robbery? Yes, yes. Or yes. just charged, okay. Yeah, yeah no, convicted. Yep. He was um, unusual in his, in his method of operation because he worked alone where most uh, banks are held up by multiple offenders, either one or two go in and the third man out the front in the car, car takes off. They used to go left, first left, first left, first right, dump the car and change over. Why they did that, I don't know, but most so, of the times we'd find the changeover car with that, uh, <laughs> with that method in Could our head. Could we just stake them out if you got... <laughs> well, we never knew. If we were following them, we didn't know what they were going to do. Mm. Um, we didn't even know whether they were going to go into a bank. You, you never knew. Right. If you knew what they were going to do, then we would have stopped them, but... Just wait out the, the right. Yeah, and then <laughs> you'd be following along. Next thing you know, they've double parked outside a bank and they're in. Well, once that happens, you can't create a siege scenario. Mm. So you have to let them get away. And they tool down, the weapons get put away, they change over the car. That's when that's when we used to grab them. So Victor was unusual in that he would, he would do his hold-ups one up. Um, he was um, investigated by previous members of the squad over many years, caught interstate, was serving a prison sentence in South Australia and he had a visitor come. It was a low-security prison. He was coming towards the end of his sentence. For some reason, he just he assumed that it was someone from the Melbourne Armed Robbery Squad coming to visit him for the other banks that were outstanding. So he did a runner, uh, escaped. It was a low-security prison, so he pretty much jumped the fence and kept running. Came straight to Melbourne and did his first bank. He had a very distinctive appearance, even with a balaclava on. He was quite easily recognisable in in that shape of his head. So we knew he was back in town. We knew he was holding up the bank. So we ran an operation. He'd hit four banks in uh, short succession. We managed to track down his movements. We found he had bought a one-way ticket heading overseas to Malta. He... Um, we set off a travel agent in North Melbourne to see if he turned up to pick up the ticket, and he did. Uh, we promptly arrested him in an intercept in the back of a cab around the corner in North Melbourne. It was a, probably the most efficient mobile intercept I was involved in. So we took him back. Um, he was charged with 19 bank hold-ups, so he's quite a prolific um, robber. Victor, uh, at the end of the day, he was being – we were to transport him up from St Kilda Road to the City Watch House. Um, there was a little tussle about how he was to be secured, um, a bit of complacency on a couple of us. And he was not secured in the back of the car as he, as he should have been. And as we got closer to the Watch House, he saw an opportunity. He knocked out the uh, police member in the back seat with him, opened the passenger door and took off. And uh, the last we saw was Victor flying down Little Lonsdale Street as fast as he could on a, fr on a Friday night, I think it was. Um, we didn't see him again until the following January when he was arrested up in, up in Nanango, Queensland, living in a caravan. So as a result of that, um, 
there was a big in, there was an investigation how he managed to escape. Um, we got in a bit of trouble for losing him, but um, you know, I think we redeemed ourselves somewhat by having <laughs> recaptured him after not long. So he escaped on the third of May, nineteen ninety. It was January ninety one when we when we rearrested him and uh, brought him back. I think I, sh- I think I gave you the photo of the crew that went up for that. Uh. <laughs> I'll put it in social media. But when um, when you say you set up a travel agent, what does that mean? That you plant like you we had s- a sat member. Off. No, oh. no, we just we just set off with some surveillance right. waiting. The, the agents, oh, I don't even remember if they were even aware, but um, we just did a surveillance operation around the travel agency to see if he would turn up. Mm-hmm. And it's, as I say, he's quite distinctive. He yeah. was quite easy to recognise. So how does one track, again, pre-electronic surveillance abilities, um, which is why I'm asking this because it would have changed so much in regards to to yeah. how you catch people nowadays. But how would you find somebody that's gone from Victoria to Queensland when there's no electronic, like people were dealing with cash. It's not like there was FPOS transactions or, um, yeah. you know, phone data and mm. stuff. So how do you catch someone up in Queensland in a caravan park? So we do, we do, we did have access to phone records. Yeah. So um, you can see if you've got a, if you've got a target, phone number you can with a warrant get the records to see who's rung it and who it's rung so with that intel we were able to identify that's how we initially identified what he was doing because we we tracked calls to his mother's place and his sister back to a motel that motel we tracked calls from the motel to the travel agent that's how we ultimately found him the first time second time was um was a casual contact and um a number of aliases. We were running alias names through bank transactions, and we found one that he'd used before. And um, then we uh, d- then we just kept working on that. It took us a while, mm. but we narrowed it down. Worked out where he was. The tactical guys, Keith Banks, not wasn't Keith himself, but it was yeah. Keith's team, the tactical squad. They went into the caravan to arrest him. Um, they weren't allowed to go in at gunpoint, so they. I remember they put speakers up called him to come out and surrender. So Brinkett ran out and ran away from the speaker straight into the arms of the tactical guys. So um, so back he came. It's much to our relief. <laughs> How does one find out the aliases that someone's using? Is it when oh, you're arresting them and interrogate, you know, having a – I say interrogate. Is it still used interrogation, still a politically correct terminology? Interrogation? Yeah, yeah when you're having a not. chat to them? Yeah, uh, <laughs> There's all sorts of ways, Fiona, mm. how, how you get those names um, from conversations, from what what people will tell you, from documents that you find. Um, yeah. Okay. Techniques have changed a lot. They have. Anyway. This is why yeah. I can ask you all these questions now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you left in 2000 and went into more – well, first of all, you were promoted to sergeant in Richmond. Um back into the CIB so you moved no no we used to go back into uniform it was a little bit unique in Victoria that if you to take promotion you had to go back to uniform I actually thought that was a really good model because what it did was it gave you a break from doing the intensity of of being a detective and in the squads you didn't really knock off and when you got a job a running investigation you ran it through until it finished that would often mean 15 16 20 hour shifts seven days a week um, you know, listening to phone taps, 
running around on the surveillance crews, writing up witness statements, tracking down leads. You'd run it all. So it was quite unrelenting. And after years of it, you really need a bit of a break. So to get promoted, Victoria had a requirement you'd go back to uniform. Go back and you'd have a bit of a break. You'd do your eight-hour shifts. You'd do some supervision. Get back to grassroots policing, which most everyone enjoyed. Mm. And then after a little while, you go back into the CIB as a detective sergeant. So a detective is a designation, not a rank. And by going mm. in uniform, so the rank is sergeant, the right. designation is detective. So a sergeant in uniform is at the same rank as a detective sergeant. You with me? No, I'm completely yeah. lost. Yeah. So ranks, ranks yep. in policing, constable, senior constable, sergeant, senior sergeant, inspector. Right. That's the rank you hold. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're a detective in a suit, then you would have that designation in front of that rank. Detective, right. senior constable, detective, sergeant, right. so on. Okay. What it actually, what the knock-on benefit of that was that good detectives going into suburban police stations as sergeants would inspire the next generation of detectives mm. to to come on. So um, it was really, it was a good arrangement. Mm. I think the interest in being a detective these days not not nearly as strong as it once was, which is a real shame. So have they stopped that requirement now in the Victorian Police? They have now, yeah. Yeah. Um, So you can get promoted within the CIB structure. Other states do it like that. Um, But a lot of them like to go, still like to go back and just for that break. So you were sergeant and then moved to your designation as detective sergeant in Melbourne CIB. I did. And left in 2000. Why did you leave? Because you've had this crazy career dealing with all these very interesting high-profile cases. Yeah. Hmm. Well, the reality of it was, Fiona, that I was – I had this aspiration, this dream to get down the coast to talk ECI. I wanted to be the sergeant running talk ECI. CIB, that was my... Why talk that's what you I wanted, wanted to surf in the morning? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to be down the coast. And, um, <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> yeah. So the, the job came up and in the, in, the mean, in the middle of all that, a colleague I used to work with in the armed robbery squad went into one of the big banks and was always offering me a job and I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I want to, I want to be a sergeant. I want to be a detective sergeant. Anyway, another opportunity came up at the same time when Torgay arrived. So I put in for it, but I didn't get it. And then, um, so hugely disappointed. And then I was at a, at the crossroads then, and I thought, well, what am I going to do now? Um, if I'm not going to get that, I could stay in, do what I'm doing, or maybe I'll try something different. But why, didn't, so, you, but why didn't you try for lawn or Anglesey? Well, they or... didn't have that. No, oh, they didn't have, there was no CIBs. Okay. Um, right. I only wanted to be in the suit. I didn't want to be in uniform. Yeah. That wasn't my thing. So um, this opportunity was sitting there again. And I thought, well, you know what, maybe I'll try it. So um, I asked for leave without pay to try it and I was told by the Chief Commissioner of the day, no, that wasn't an opportunity, either stay or you left. So I left. (laughs) Um, It was the hardest decision I've ever made. And in the first week out, um, if I could have unravelled it, I would have. Because you were in for 21 years at this stage. Yep. Yeah. Um, So I went out, I went into one of the big banks and – the first week was probably the hardest Why? because I wasn't well. I wasn't working with detectives anymore. Mm. I didn't have a gun. 
didn't have a police badge, didn't have any authority, <laughs> couldn't arrest people, even had to buy my own a ticket to get to town on the train. <laughs> I've never done that before. <laughs> what a badass. <laughs> oh, no. And I sat in an office and I looked at uh, banking screens and thought, oh, I think I've made a big mistake here. But I was committed. So um, I forged ahead and um, in a couple of weeks, the work was very similar. Um, in the end, it was the same work, different master, and um, that just led on to other things and, and off I went. So um, it grew into a national role and then a global role. Uh, at one point, I had 12 teams, investigator teams reporting to me uh, across Australia, New Zealand, Asia, and the Pacific. So, um, And I set them up from scratch. PNG was the first, um, New Zealand, PNG, Fiji, Indonesia, Cambodia, Vietnam, India, Philippines, Hong Kong, Singapore. Um, yep. What were you guys investigating? Because you, you put a comment in here in the document that you sent me. You said there was more general crime than in Victoria Police, murders, mm. drug trafficking, slavery, gun running, rape, theft, corruption, fraud. Yep, all of that. Now, you remember any organisation like policing is a cross-section of the broader community. So when crimes are committed by people, you um, they come from all different walks of life and professions. So in a, in a big bank, um, you have drug traffickers. The, there was, the, the murder was an employee who um, had a fairly minor confrontation with the guy at McDonald's in St Kilda Road, Aboriginal guy, had finished uni, um, was very drunk, and instead of staying in the cab and going home to the university residence where he was living, he decided he'd stop at McDonald's, get something to eat. He stumbled into this guy who was sitting there. The offender wasn't drunk, um, wasn't drugged, but took issue to what to the knock, so he got up and kicked him to death. And that individual was a bank employee. Um, dropped his receipt at the scene when he took off. Um, homicide squad contacted me. This is what we've got. We need to work out who that is. That's the offenders. Turned out to be an employee. He was arrested a um, short time later. So when it's an employee that involved in criminal conduct, the, the unit I ran would get involved and we would work with the police. So we worked with the homicide squad. but So we didn't actually run it like a police investigation, but anything to do with the conduct of the individual, um, a thorough employee would come to us. Now, you mentioned the victim. You mentioned an acronym. You said, was it NOC? What does that mean? NOC. What did you say that the the victim... Oh, he knocked into him. He oh, just he was drunk and he just he, he had his foot out right. and he sort of tripped and fell into him. And so the offender took issue with that, okay. um, being a tough guy. It was all on videotape. The, the investigation was effectively contained to the scene. Wow. So um, the whole thing was there. It was a, it was a shocking crime. Um, a really talented young guy um, who did nothing other than stop at Macca's to get something to eat on the way home, paid, paid his life for it. The crook's now serving sentence for murder, significant sentence as it should be. Yeah. In terms of working with one of the banks, <clears throat> with the other, I mean, you said that you you worked with the police force. So are you taking evidence to the police or the police mm, coming correct. to you? Both. So, so even though the 
how do I phrase this? So even though the employee of the bank is an employee, there's no um, protection there. You're you're literally working. Well, it depends, Fiona. So the police would have to get warrants to um, obtain admissible evidence, like bank statements and records. Mm-hmm. We would help facilitate that, but they would they could only get it legally. Yeah. Um, but there was there is obvious cooperation. It's in any corporate. It's in, uh, yeah. Um, interest to cooperate with the police. police of course yeah and i mean if you're having fraud running through any banks and stuff i mean you want to stamp that out so that's important to to do that which is the that's right yeah yeah, yeah that's right so um you know people and money they're a they're a dangerous mix aren't they yeah. I used to say if you could get rid of one or the other you wouldn't have any problems but um you wouldn't have a business either so mm. opportunistic crimes people employees stealing money from Customers' accounts, stealing money from the banks' accounts, uh, working with organised crime, being recruited. You know, in the early days, there was one matter where an individual was um, targeted at the casino, lent money, knowing that they couldn't pay it back. The debt gets to a certain size, and they say, "Right now, pay back the money. I can't." Well, then I want information. I want high net worth individuals' account numbers, passwords. You get all that for me. I'll clear the debt. So they were targeted by by organised crime. Um, generally down at the casino. Um, so, yeah, so they would have had to be, when you say targeted, that they would have had to be staked out. They would have been identified beforehand, knew exactly who uh, they not are. Not necessarily. Um, there's ways that they just start socialising. Hi, Fiona, what's your name? What do you do? Oh, I work in a bank. Oh, that's good. Can I buy you a drink? They, they groom them effectively. Jesus. Um, over periods of time. Now, that process, that all changed the way that banks operated changed it that made that harder to yeah. perpetuate. But um, we had that. We had um, drug trafficking. We had um, sexual assaults um, and a whole range of different things. And uh, well, a lot of that's in Australia. Um, there were other challenges in the other countries with different jurisdictions and, mm. and different policing models. So uh, we had to be really careful Um you know, we did a number of investigations in Cambodia. Well, dealing with the police in Cambodia is not like dealing with the police in Melbourne. Nothing like it. You've got corrupt regimes, facilitation payments where they expect to be paid to do the things that you would take for granted. Um, socialist economies where the police have a very strong role. And as a foreigner, you can't be seen to be involved in in doing investigations you're a you're a business you're on a business visa visiting indonesia particularly was indonesia and vietnam were the two countries where where we had to be really careful how we would operate we would be there in an advisory capacity so even though those teams reported to me as far as the government of the country was concerned they were not reporting to me they were reporting to the country business it's very convoluted. It does. It's very, yeah, it's a very complex environment to work in. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. How did you get involved with doing the uh, police veterans organisation? Because were you involved in the conception of it or? Like, no, how did, okay. I, was, I wasn't, Fiona. I was actually, I wasn't working at the time. Um, and a mate of mine, a good mate of mine, Michael Hayes, who's a police veteran, um, Michael, he said to me, um, this is and this is just after the four 
police were were killed on the Eastern Freeway in Melbourne. Okay, um, so and that's a really difficult thing. So for those who don't know, you want me to? Yes, but if it's too difficult, we can just tell people to Google it. No, 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 it's okay. okay. So um, two four, two police pulled over a, a a a driver on the Eastern Freeway. Um, they called for another backup unit to help them. While they were talking to that motorist, a truck driver, high on drugs, um, swerved into the emergency lane, ran them over and killed them all. Um, that's the greatest single loss of life of Victorian police since the Kelly game that I can think for in one at one time. It was extraordinary. And most people, uh, not just in Victoria or Melbourne, but around this country, would remember it. And the outpouring of grief and shock was profound. The conduct of that driver only exacerbated the the trauma, and there's a lot of police that attended that scene that may will, probably won't return to work and, and will never really recover from their experiences of being involved in that. So that incident happened. Um, Is that still before the courts? No, it's all done now. Okay. Uh, the the driver Singh received a lengthy sentence after pleading guilty, and the that's the truck driver that killed them. Mm. The other one has been dealt with for uh, behaviour over filming the members who are dying it on the side horrific. of the road. It was horrific. I know. I know. It, not a lot shocks you as a copper, particularly after a long time, but boy, I tell you, that one that one does. And is so, that still before the courts? Or no, is no, that that's, all, that's all done The now. filming one, okay. Yep. Yeah, yeah, he's been sentenced. And that was that public indecency or it was an unusual charge. So it was, um, all, it was awful. It, yeah, it, mm. and the, yeah, I don't know how else. For those that listening that don't know, he filmed their final moments and then posted it on mm. social media. Like you couldn't get any more awful. Well, devoid of any humanity. Yeah, um, to film them dying and then blaming them because you couldn't get home to your sushi. Um, just uh, it beggars belief. But when, when something like that happens as a police member and there's a number of police that have been killed on duty, um, if you go back to the Gary Silken, Rod Miller um, murders, I was talking to Gary Silken in the morning and he was dead in the evening. So um, What happened you know, those, on that, in that situation, David? In the, in the Silk Miller one, they were yeah. involved in a stakeout um, on some restaurants that were being held up out in Moorabbin. Uh, Gary Silk and Rod Miller, they intercepted a car. The, um, that intercept resulted in an exchange of gunfire. Both members were murdered, shot dead. Um, there's a retrial coming, so probably won't touch on that. Yeah. Um, but when, so when those things happen, they, they're very difficult to wrestle with. Um, when the four died on the freeway, when you're in the job, you can mourn with, with the membership because you're part of that family. And you join the police force, you're in this big family. I've joined this family and we're all going to look after each other and that's how it is. So when a member dies on duty, it's profound, and you, but you mourn with them. When, you've, when you're out of the job, you're in no man's land because you're not part of the membership, so you can't mourn with them. You don't really mourn with the public because you don't feel like you're part of that. Mm. You're this thing in the middle, and I found that really, I found that really difficult. So, um, 
as a result of some conversations with a mate, he said, oh, there's this thing called police veterans support. I'm going to join it. So what they're looking for is veterans to help out other people who are struggling with life from their operational police experience. I said, oh, that's a good idea. I'll do that too. So that's how I found out about it. That's how I started to get involved. And um, then I became aware that there was a, they'd started up an uh, organisation that had the need for somebody to go in and run it. And I was approached for that. And I thought, oh, well, I can probably do more good here than just being a volunteer. So I came in to, to, to run what is now Police Veterans Victoria. So not-for-profit? It's a not-for-profit. We have two employees, mm-hmm. three, including our social worker, this mm-hmm. self, social worker Beck and Carla, um, our comms officer, a band of about 60 volunteers, mm-hmm. all veterans, who have gone through a form of training to become veteran peer support officers. And the philosophy of that, Fiona, is that we take uh, veteran police members who have a lived experience that can relate to the trauma that the veteran community are suffering and it's kind of like a buddy program. So we try and match them up. Um, The youngest person veteran we're supporting is a 29-year-old female and the oldest is a 96-year-old male. That's the broad range of our veteran support group. We, in the last 12 months, we've supported more than 250 police veterans for a whole range of different issues, including drug and alcohol abuse, homelessness, believe it or not, um, social isolation, depression, anxiety. Um, A lot of them are really traumatised by their time in the job. The support network didn't seem to exist, and so... A couple of volunteers, a couple of serving police members, um, Vicky Key and Mick Cummins, started up a volunteer retired support officer group off the side of their work commitments, helping out their former mates. That got bigger and bigger. Graham Ashton, the Chief Commissioner of Victoria at the time, became aware of it and said, this isn't right. We can't have volunteers trying to pull together something as important as this. So they had a fundraising walk. Um, the union boss, Wayne Gatt, Graham Ashton, started to walk each end of the state, met up in the middle, raised some money and set up the organisation that I am running today. But it only exists in Victoria. There's nowhere else around the country is doing this yet. And considering it's supporting vet- veterans, government funded... You could, we are not funded. You're not, fun- are, you're not funded at all from the government? No, we are funded entirely from donations at the moment. Right. So I'll let listeners ponder that one and come to your own conclusions whether or not you think that that's appropriate. Yeah. Um, oh God, that astounds me. Um, so from my understanding of how you've ex- described it, when you're in the force, there's support, there's counselling, mental health support, but once you're out, you're out of that loop and that's where you're filling the hole? Correct. Right. Okay. So if you think about, I mean, the benchmark for us, Fiona, is um, is Open Arms, which is the organisation that supports defence veterans. Mm. But, you know, they've got 500 staff around the country. We as a society in Australia look after our defence veterans reasonably well. They have gold card for active service, a white card for medical treatments. There's a whole department in Canberra of Defence Veterans Affairs that look after them 
that are well resourced and well supportive but there is nothing for police veterans so our organization exists in victoria it doesn't exist in any other state but victorians are police are no different the same problem happens everywhere and it was described to me by one of our corporate supporters as a hidden tragedy and i think that probably sums it up pretty well um i didn't realize there was nothing for vic police i thought they were had ongoing tax um, benefits, uh, lifetime um, health insurance sort of things, access no. to none of it. There is, if, there is support from the police, Victoria Police through their welfare department mm. for EAP services. Mm-hmm. They're, fairly, they're fairly light touch. Um, if there's an accepted workers' compensation claim, there's, there's cover with that. But a lot of the veterans leave and the trauma doesn't, doesn't trigger them until well beyond. Um, and that's the loss of purpose and the loss of community are the two biggest triggers for veterans when the wheels fall off mm. and they start reliving this trauma. Um, it, it is, it's just, it, it's almost overwhelming. I, I'm surprised at the extent of it and, we don't really have a picture of exactly what we're dealing with yet. I keep using that quote, field of dreams, you know, like that movie, if you build it, they'll come. We built our organization and the work continues to come in. We supported 35 veterans in February. That's the most in any one month, but we've got 4,000 veterans record registered with us. There's at least twice that out there in Victoria. Mm. and in other states where they've moved that we don't don't have. So a lot of people don't know we exist. We've got a lot of work to do. So I'm grateful for the time on your podcast because that helps us lift our profile and the awareness of the issues that we've got to encourage police veterans to join mm. because it doesn't cost anything to do it um, and to know that we're there to refer people in. So we are getting referrals come to us through our website from family members uh, we get serving police that are now coming to us who come across veterans during the course of their patrols and other tasks that need help mm-hmm. and they don't know what to do with it. And we're now focusing our mind towards the partners because they're a bit of a, they're a real forgotten group. Um, a lot of the arms often get wrapped around the, the individual who's been traumatised, but no one puts a lot of thought to the, what the partners had to live with. And sometimes their suffering is just as profound. I had a, um, a veteran's ex-partner who contacted us. Her son attracted PTSD from, a 14, from the age of 14 because of the trauma that he was living with through his father. And this guy's now in his late 20s and on a disability pension. So there's a lot of collateral damage that comes with it. Correct me if I get this figure wrong. You said that you had 60 volunteers dealing in a buddy system. But yep. you've got 4,000 people that have signed up to the organisation as veterans. Mm. How many individuals can one volunteer take on as buddies? Well, it depends. Some yeah. of them will manage multiple referrals. Sometimes the referrals are just once. Yeah. Some are phone calls. Um, others are more ongoing. Um, it just depends mm. um, how much is it. But we've... Beck, Beck does a pretty good job of um, monitoring them so that we don't overload them and we don't give them too much too often because I know from my own experience when you 
deal of four or five in a, in, in a week, um, you start thinking about your own past and, um, yeah. So we've just got to make sure that we look after our own people Mental as well health, yeah. so we can look after them. But policing is a lot more complicated than in my day um, and I can see that, those, that so? complication. Well, you've got social media for a start. Yeah. Um, the police have to film every action they take. The public film everything they do. They post it. Things get lost in translation. Um, crooks actively target police to kill them. Now, police around the world have been the target of um, unlawful, unwarranted killings, but they're more random, they're more violent, um, they're more profound. Um, how often do you hear the news about a police car getting rammed? It's almost a daily occurrence. Um, they churn through the court system, they're back out. There's um, the respect for the job is not as it once was. So um, they don't have any compunction to run coppers over, stabbing them, shooting them, running over with the cars. So it's a much more dangerous job than it, than it ever used to be. Do you think that's changed um, in the last couple of years in particular with COVID? Yeah. Uh, not sure COVID's done it. It's, it's, it's changed over the last 10 years particularly, yeah. I think. I don't know why I say 10. I'm just sort of so there's a social period media, of time. I would say, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's really difficult because, you know, in the past, the good old days we talk about, yeah. there was a lot of – police had a lot more discretion to deal with um, bad behaviours in the community and now the, you don't get that discretion. You don't – you don't um, – everything's by the book down the line and if you don't do that way someone will tape it allegations come fast and fierce you know you, it's part of policing someone used to say if you didn't get a complaint you're not doing your job right but um those things themselves take a toll <laughs> i've heard a few few ex-coppers say that yeah. um how can people help because it's obviously no one joins a police force to end up with PTS. I don't like using the D on it because I don't think it's a disorder. No, um, uh, no one joins a police force for PTS. No one joins a police force to um, be uh, sworn out and cussed out from the public. There's a side of policing that I think a lot of people are quite naive that potentially will come. And that's from a citizen. I obviously don't have any experience of it, but you can see it in terms of, the, as you mentioned, the social media interactions and so forth. Yeah. Um, how can people help? How can how can people that recognise these people are there to serve the community? I mean, that's the oath. You serve and protect the community. How can people – I mean, you don't have government funding. Like, that's crazy. Mm. Like, how can people support yeah. this organisation? So um, the first thing to do is talk about it. Um, mm. Let's get the conversations out there. It's it's a tough gig, and sure, everyone signs up to do that job, and you want you willingly put yourself in harm's way to protect the society. Some more empathy and understanding of of what that does is important. Mm. Um, we we need money to operate, so we've got a website. People can donate to that. Um, our website is policeveteransvic.org.au. Mm -hmm. um, we're tax-status we're tax endorsed, so any donations are tax-deductible. Um, we want veterans to join us, so the more we have, 
the more that know about the services that we offer. And what we've seen, Fiona, is that whenever we've done a story on our Facebook account or we've published a story about someone's experiences, it results in a whole lot more activity. More people join, more people come forward. Some people give us donations to help fund the programs that we are um, trying to deliver on. Um, we want everyone to ask their, their we want to ask their member of parliament to fund us. Um, we've got letters we're going to send out to through our own membership. Um, all we ask for is the same level of support that the governments give defence veterans. Um, why can't we have a minister for police veterans affairs? You don't that have sits... a you don't have a minister for police veterans affairs. No, nothing like it. There's a minister for police, um, but why isn't there a portfolio? for police veterans affairs like there are for defence veterans affairs. So um, I, would I would have assumed that that would have been all under the police minister for police banner, so it's obviously not. Not for the veteran community, right. it's not, no. not Certainly not directly. And I guess in fairness to the governments, we haven't really lobbied this. We're only a start-up. So we've started the, those conversations saying that mm. we just need enough money to operate. We just need enough money to not be not rely on volunteers to build out the services. Um, there's a psychiatric place, Ward 17. Defence veterans go there; they're covered. Police veterans are not. Um, that's just not right. <laughs> that we, we don't. And you know, from a military point of view, there's this saying that um, military people train every day for a one day event. Well, coppers get to train one day for an every day event. And they go into their own theatre of war every day and some just don't come home from it. So those that do come home uh, are traumatised because of the experiences that they've endured. The public need to understand that a bit more and maybe they can influence the government to fund it. It's taxpayers' money that's invested in these people. Mm. These people, men and women, have paid an enormous sacrifice to, to keep the public safe. But... Um, they often feel they've been discarded when their time's up. That's and I think wrong. the other, as much, and by all, me by all means, we're not um, dissing the military veterans because obviously that's extremely important. Absolutely. But there is a significant difference in return in regards to once they're back home in Australia, um, they're, apart from mental health issues, they're out of that sort of, harm's way in service parts. In in terms of policing, you're around those triggers all the time because you might have dealt with an incident on that street corner or dealt with, you know, a car yeah. a fatal car accident on that yeah. road. And and if that's in your local community, you're seeing that and having those triggers all the time. Oh no. Oh, we've got a couple that have um they see a shoe on the road is a trigger because yeah. invariably when people get hit in a road fatality their shoes come off. Mm. Um Coppers have done a lot of road fatalities and they're the most, often the most traumatic because they're just snatched um, in a moment. Those shoes are a trigger for a lot of them mm. from, from past experiences. And, you know, you, you, you see the worst in people. Um, death, um, being involved in death is traumatic uh, uh, enough. But for some, they see it day in, day out, and some do it for 30 years. Um, they say this... Post-traumatic stress like that glass, every critical incident, every major incident you, you investigate is one more drop until the glass overflows. Mm. Some are not impacted by it. Not all. Most are not. Um, I, don't, I wouldn't say I was particularly impacted by it, but I can remember the last 
the last death I investigated before I left was a was a 16 year old who hung himself off the rafters in the family room. I can still tell you what he was wearing. <laughs> um, 20 odd years later. So those yeah. memories don't leave you. But when the demons take over and um, the other triggers come and if there's no one there to help them get through it, that's when it becomes really profound. With the letters that you said write to the MPs, they mm. are on, there is, is there a template on your website so people can go to the website? And uh, not rem- yet. We, we just, we just finalised that process. So okay. I put it through to our board on Friday and they agreed. Yeah. Um, and it's an election year so we want to capitalise on that. Um, predominantly it's a state issue, but um, this is a national problem. Mm. So we've got Queensland on board with Keith's support. Um, I think we're going to get Police Veterans Queensland up and running this year. Mm-hmm. New South Wales are king. Um, the veterans are particularly. And we've got veteran police in uh, South Australia, Western Australia, have asked to join us because there's nothing like that for their state. Well, like I said earlier, we're not unique in this. Victoria is not unique in its... Um, issues with veteran police. It's the same everywhere. Is it no a, one's doing anything about it. Is it a situation, David, that each of the states, although it is a national issue, is it because, because of the funding that every state has to do it at a state level or can it be brought under a national umbrella? It totally can be a national umbrella. So then you can get it state and a, federal funding. Yeah, ideally. Yeah. I mean, you need, you, need the police, you need the police involved. We wouldn't be able to operate successfully without Victoria Police involvement. Yeah. We, we work out of the welfare office. The welfare officers support us. We support them. VicPol provide us with a social worker. All of that um, support mechanism is, is critical. So you, each state needs their own police department to, to partner with them. Mm. But a federated model with a national body oversighting them all um, is what would be ideal, I think. And we're not talking... Uh, a huge amount of money here. How much um, are we talking? Uh, well, we, we operate on a shoestring. I mean, each state could operate on a couple hundred thousand. That's it? Really? Yeah. Well, in Victoria, the state government spent 450000 a year on defence veterans. We've All we've said is all, all we want is the same amount. And defence is a Commonwealth problem. So why is the state paying that? Give us the same amount of money. Mm. If we had that funding... We'd be, um, we we could do a lot of things. We could have our own counsellors. Um, we could run a whole lot of more complicated programs, um, building that community out. Um, these are not. We, we are not a resource heavy expenditure organisation. Everyone needs to jump onto the police veteran police veterans of Vic website. I'm going to link it in the show notes. David, thank you so much for coming on. It's a really worthy cause, everybody. Please write to your MPs and uh, make it happen. Great. Thanks for having me on, Fiona. No worries. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. Thank you.